0: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and enjoy.
1: Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so excited to welcome Sarah Sliger to read from her debut novel, Take Me Apart, which is now out in paperback. And after that, she'll be in conversation with Steph Cha. Before I introduce them, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing with a limited capacity. We're open from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. Masks and social distancing are required, and we ask that you continue to be respectful and kind to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit. We are also offering online ordering through our beautifully newly designed website, which you can find at www.skylightbooks.com. And now to introduce you to the wonderful humans whose conversation you're about to enjoy. Sarah Sliger is an author and academic based in Los Angeles where she teaches English and creative writing as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Southern California. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's in history from the University of Cambridge. Her writing has been published in McSweeney's Quartz, The Hairpin and other outlets. Take Me Apart is her first novel. She'll be in conversation with Steph Cha, the author of Your House Will Pay, winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and California Book Award, and the Juniper Song Crime Trilogy. She's a critic whose work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, where she served as noir editor, and is the current series editor of the Best American Mystery and Suspense Anthology. A native of the San Fernando Valley, she lives in Los Angeles with her family. Welcome, Sarah and Steph. I'm so excited to have you. And we're going to start by having Sarah read us a little bit from Take Me Apart.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, Natalie, and thanks, Steph, for being here as well. Um, I will... Just read a short bit from Take Me Apart. Um, the only thing that's important to know is that the book is told through sort of two narrators. There's like a present day narrator who is named Kate and um, she's doing this research into um, kind of going through the the estate of um, this famous photographer from the 1980s named Miranda. And so parts of the book are told through like found documents from Miranda's diaries, um, medical records, um, all kinds of different sort of ephemera that would have been in her house. So um, the first part that I'm going to read is um, kind of told in that format. Um, so it's good context to have. Series one, correspondence. Box one, personal correspondence. Folder, Eggers, Howe. December 27, 1990. Dear Hal, thanks so much for the invitation to write a confessional essay. I will have to respectfully decline. Here's why, you fucking tool. You want something juicy, rich, spilling, like biting into a ripe fig. But confessions aren't sexy. Confessions are hernias. An organ pushing through an opening, hacking up your body. Wet and bulging. Confessions should never be exposed to sun. Of course the fans want it. They're sybarates, cannibals, starving predators. They want to sink their teeth into the organ and rip it apart. They want to be in the inner circle. But I won't cater to them. I can't. I'm not a stock option. I'm not publicly held. My photos are already making you rich, aren't they? So what do you care? These essays, press releases, lectures to donors, they're just words. The photos will sell themselves. The photos will say everything I want to say. Yours truly, your money bank, Miranda. January 1st, uh, sorry, January 4th, 1991. Miranda, sweetheart, of course I don't want you to feel that I'm using you. I thought the confessional would be a good experience to tell your story. Also, I think you are discrediting the confessional genre. It is very popular. Haven't you read Sylvia Plath? I'm not saying you have to give everything away. You can create the illusion of a confession. Everything these days is about performance. Think Cindy, think that adorable little gent from North Carolina that I signed last year. You're being too literal, as always. I did tell Romy that you would say something for the exhibit catalog. He has a vision for your contributions that will feel very fresh. We can stage it as an interview, whatever, but we need something. And anyway, I think the recluse schtick is a little overplayed now. You've been doing it too long. Meanwhile, I have a buyer interested in purchasing a complete set of bottle girls, but have no more prints of number four available after the last one sold. We've only sold seven out of a print run of 10, so I think you must have more at your place. Can you check? Hal? January 18th, 1991. Hal, I have couriered down the three remaining prints of BG number four. I can do another print run next month. Let me guess what Romy wants me to write about. Motherhood. Marriage. Too much fame, not enough fame, my vagina. Who's gone in it? Who came out of it? Whether I got that extra stitch postpartum. Whether my moment has faded, whether I'm overpriced, whether I'll be forgotten. What happened in Manguset? Whether the scars in my photos are real or whether I made it all up. No, none of these, really? Next time Romeo is dragging you off in a bathroom stall, instead of telling him I'll do shit I'm not going to do, maybe you can remind him that I want the show to include the version of capillaries number no. six that is at MoMA, not the one at Chicago. The Saturation is different. I don't care which one is cheaper to ensure. Um, um, and then I'll just read a few paragraphs from um, Kate's narration, just so you get a taste of that. Kate. The house where Miranda Brand had lived and died was, on the outside, unremarkable. It was perched on the crown of the hill like a dollop of mayonnaise on the bald curve of a hard boiled egg. The color might have been beautiful once, but the wind coming off the ocean had beaten the paint to a drab gray, the same shade as the sky, so that in some places it was hard to see where the fog stopped and the building began. Two overgrown lemon trees fanned across the front, their tallest branches just brushing the windows of a third floor. It could have been any house on any hill in a coastal town, east coast or west, and yet as soon as Kate saw it, her heart gave a strange swift beat. Maybe it was just exertion. In a terse, unpunctuated email a few days earlier, Theo Brand had given her directions to the house via a walking path from town, as well as the combination for a lock on the gate to the property. Kate had imagined an easy stroll, but instead she had found herself climbing a steep, tangled furrow through redwoods until sweat bloomed between her shoulder blades. As for the gate, the lock was so rusty that she had spent five minutes scraping it with a bobby pin just to get it open. Despite the delay, she was 15 minutes early, too early to knock. She stood at the edge of the clearing, eyeing the house and huddling into herself to stay warm. It was colder here than she had expected. The morning air is wet and icy as a dead fish, and all the little hairs on her arms were standing up. Dinner last night had been weird. Her aunt and uncle tossing out information on everything from area hikes to the guest room toilets quirks to the local beaches rules, while Kate chewed an overcooked state and tried not to worry about her new job. Kate had dismissed her aunt's concerns in the car the day before, but the truth was she had only spoken to her new boss. She had spoken to her new boss only once before, a brisk 30-minute phone interview during which he had shared almost nothing about himself. Afterward, through Google, she learned that he had gone to Harvard, bounced between a few successful internet startups, and now ran some computer-related consulting business, which had gotten him featured on an important 35 under 35 list for the tech industry. His name came up in a few magazine articles and, of course, in his father's obituary from six months ago but the press coverage was bland and uninformative. In interviews, he declined to comment on anything unrelated to work. The only personal information Kate had found was a line item in a Bay Area gossip blog about his divorce last year, not a single article where he spoke about his mother. Kate had been on the wrong side of enough news reports over the past year to understand the desire for privacy. On the other hand, she had taken this job assuming she would learn more about him at some point. She had figured that they would talk again before she moved all the way across the country, or that he would send detailed instructions about what exactly the work would entail. She had meant to do a deeper dive into the tech blogs. Now, as she stared at the house, she realized that she had gotten so distracted by the logistics of moving that she had done the unimaginable. She had stopped researching. The critical moment was here and she had run out of time. This was it. This was all she knew.
3: Uh, that was great. Um, I, I love this book. I read this book, uh, you know, kind of in uh, the thick of quarantine, you know, when I had a newborn and it was just such a pleasure to read. I mean, really rich, lovely prose and a really exciting storyline and like characters that you really feel for. I mean, it was a book that really moved at a time when I really wanted a book that really moved. Um, so if people are listening who haven't had the pleasure of reading this yet, I would highly recommend it. Um, I enjoyed your so reading. Much, Steph. <laughs> so much stuff. No, of course it's just it's wonderful. Um, so uh, you know, I had a bunch of questions prepared, and I'm going to ask them. But I actually wanted to start because, uh, uh, you know, listening to your reading, I-, I noticed you know, there's this conversation that we're constantly having in our culture about the separation of art from the artist, and usually that conversation is kind of framed around um, a male. Ro- author or artist and his misbehavior and whether that can or should be separated from his art. We actually don't usually have this conversation, um, which is also about the art and the artist, which is about um, privacy. and, And especially as it pertains to female artists, you know, just listening to that passage and thinking about that book, you know, there's this there's this hunger for the soul and the life of female artists that I'm not sure we get for men, you know, there's a lot of like, leave the men alone. But there's a lot, there's a lot also of like women have to like, bear their souls, you know, for the internet, write these personal essays. Um, And I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on that. So I kind of wanted to start, start there and, uh, you know, ask about um, Miranda brand and, uh, and kind of your thoughts on this. Uh, art and artist separation. Yeah, totally. That was one of um, the questions that I was
2: most interested in going into writing the book um, was this, all of these sort of expectations of female artists, um, whether they're writers or visual artists or actors, there's this um, expectation for writers, as we both know of this personal essay that's sort of like divulging um, often like traumatic experiences is kind of the expectation. Um, And it's an expectation that's definitely on women artists um, more. And um, there's this sense of like entitlement to the truth about a female artists life that I think is sort of rampant um, in our culture. Um, I think that, you know, what you're talking about this kind of like I don't know if I would call it an exact reversal, but the way that the discourse has changed um, more recently to the question of like, whether men who do terrible things, like whether we should still consume their art, um, it's almost, it, It's kind of, I guess it's hard to imagine that conversation happening around a woman because it feels like women's lives are already expected to be so present in their art, that the, um, the idea that, um, you know, if we think about like the Blake Bailey book is obviously the most recent, like really prominent example, but um, it just seems so unlikely that um, a female artist would be able to reach like the level of prominence that Blake Bailey did with biography and not have um, these truths about, um, about his past or her past come out earlier. Um, and so I definitely was sort of interested in, um, in examining that sense of entitlement and what that feels like on the reverse side. Um, and I think that what's, um, what Miranda's kind of coming up against is that a lot of what people want to know about her because of the type of art that she does, which is very, um, involves a lot of self-portraiture. Um, it is very violent and very sort of confrontational. But the things that they want to know about her are linked to some really traumatic things that have happened in her life. And so her desire to like protect that space and keep her trauma private and not sort of process it um, comes into conflict with people's expectations for what she um, what she should share. Um, and then I guess the other thing just to add to that is that even though I mentioned personal essays, and I think that's like a more recent development in terms of like, you know, what we're at, what we're demanding of um, female writers, I feel like that's become more common in like the last five years or so. A lot of these, you know, expectations have been around um, for a long time. And Miranda is sort of based on like an amalgamation or at least as a character who's like set in the world of, you know, real um, female artists who are working in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And so um, I definitely feel like I wanted my representation of her experience with that to resonate um, with like the reality of
3: of women's historical experiences. And so much of her story and also Kate's story has to do with well, one, their relationships with horrible men, um, but also with like kind of struggles with mental illness, which, you know, which kind of the specter of like these mental health struggles kind of affects their day-to-day lives, of course, but also the stigma attached to any kind of mental health issues for women, you know, really come to be very dominant in like both of their lives. Um, and, And Kate, is drawn to Miranda, you know, for this reason, you know, this, this, uh, th- this, i this idea of like this woman who, you know, people did not really take at face value uh, and who died kind of under mysterious circumstances, you know, she feels, she feels, um, she feels strongly connected to her, um, you know, and they're both very like driven, intelligent women. And this becomes kind of this, uh, Huge shadow on both of their stories. I and mean, can you talk a little bit about uh, about where Kate's coming from? You know, I know you there. You there was a little bit of it in that passage, but I found kind of her backstory to be really interesting too.
2: Yeah. Um. So Kate is basically coming from. You don't like find out. I guess all of the details until later in the book. So I'll save some, of it, but that she's basically coming from um, an experience of sexual harassment, um, in New York that became like really widely publicized. And so she became sort of like the poster child for, um, you know, this particular, like bad actor at, um, at a newspaper, sort of like the poster child for, um, one of his victims. And so, um, that sort of prompted, uh, a kind of, now I'm like trying to decide how much is too much to give away, but basically, as we learned through like the course of the story, it basically prompted um, an episode of um, like of deep depression, of clinical depression, and led to you know treatment and um, to treatment for uh, for mental illness. So that, that's explained, I guess, in more depth um, in the book. I forgot. <laughs> Question again, just to speak about her
3: past. Yeah, yeah no, I just kind of wanted to know, like, um, you know, the, like, what do you see as kind of drawing her to to, to Miranda? Yeah, totally. So I think
2: that Kate, um, coming from this background, is like drawn to Miranda as like what she sees as um, being this like very like powerful person. I think at first she sees her as like very confrontational, kind of like takes no shit, just like. Um, is really alluring to Kate because she has this sort of like facade. um, And some of it is like her real personality too, Miranda's real personality, but this image that she projects of being like really fierce and tough. Um, And then Kate's also sort of predisposed because of what the sort of situation that she's coming from to think about, um, you know, what what are sort of the hidden stories that are behind this that aren't getting told? Um, She's like convinced that there's more to Miranda's story than meets the eye, and it becomes kind of this like vehicle for her to also confront some of the issues that she's dealing with. Um, But I do think that what she figures out, um, or over the course of the narrative, or what the reader at least is supposed to figure out, I think it takes her a little longer, is that even though Kate feels really defensive of Miranda and like this sense of like, oh, you know, other people feel so entitled to her story um, and have like created this narrative about her that's not true. At the same time, like Kate is also using Miranda as a cipher to create her own narrative. And so um, this idea of like how much of someone else's story can you like ethically kind of appropriate into your own self-imagining and then what happens like when that's no longer just like something that is influencing your own interpretation of yourself or your narrative but also like you know kate starts to um, increasingly take actions that are increasingly questionable and are influencing like miranda's um own legacy um that are sort of like probing into questions about miranda's son Um, and sort of doing this like in the name of like protecting Miranda, but it becomes very murky.
3: Yeah, I was actually reminded when reading this book of, you know, a, of like a kind of classic staple of crime fiction which is the homicide detective, usually male, um, investigating the murder of a beautiful young woman and over the course of the investigation like falling in love with this person who doesn't exist anymore. And wanting to put everything, you know, it's 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 kind of it, it's kind of a genre trope that I think that like you've taken in this really interesting direction. But I was really reminded of that because of that ability to project, you know, their own issues onto it. You know, I was wondering, you know, you come from an academic background and you have done a good deal of uh, research on kind of the legal procedural. And um, you know, I was wondering what appeals to you about crime fiction about this genre, you know, or the or the suspense novel. You know, I don't even know exactly how you categorize this. There are so many shades of shades of subgenre that I could could sort of shoehorn this into. You know, it's kind of a mix of a lot of things. But um but you clearly have some kind of attraction to this genre, which I'm also a big part of and a big fan of and I I I love crime fictions, you know. So I'm asking this as a genre lover, but um but yeah what what um what appealed to you about writing a suspense novel? Yeah,
2: totally. I um I'm trying, I mean, I do think like the correlation to my academic work and like my um, my fiction writing is not always one-to-one. So like, it's harder for me to like conceptualize the, um, the exact connection, but I definitely do love reading crime novels and suspense novel- novels. Um, and that is both like where my academic research started because it's always like great to research something you're like passionate about. Um, and then also why I wanted to, you know, write my own. Um, I think there's, you know, there, there's, like, a few things. I think that um, I just like the, sort of, um, the, like, there's, like, a, kind of, gritty um, tone that I feel, like, feels more um, accessible in, um, in crime fiction that I just, like, enjoy um, writing in. Um, I think a lot about tone. So I feel like that sounds really abstract, but there's definitely something about like the particular voice that appeals to me. Um, I think like just the experience of suspense, you know, is like a pleasurable experience. I also think it's really hard to pull off on a technical level. And so um, it was like challenging to me to try to figure out how you actually create that suspense in a book. Um, And so just like as a writer, I think that the suspense novel obviously is something that like brings that suspense on a craft level to the surface. Um, and then, you know, I also feel that, you know, fundamentally a lot of, um, you know, a lot of aspects of crime and criminal justice speak to our values as a society or different people's or groups values. And, um, can kind of become this like crucible for illuminating um, a lot of the most intense emotions, human emotions that people experience. So I think it, it's sort of like a, a mix of those. Um, and I really, especially, um, I guess the other thing is that I feel like, you know, there's this cool sort of like space in crime fiction now that is kind of between literary fiction, um, but also like having these genre elements. And I love genre and I love genre elements and I think they're like so interesting to work with. Um, And I also love that there's like an appeal to a broader audience. And so I think it just like felt on a craft level, like it was a good fit for me as well as, you know, being interested in particular topics or stories.
3: Yeah, I mean, I thought it all fit together really well. I also wanted to ask about, you know, your kind of um, interest in visual art. I don't know. I, I mean, I wrote I, I wrote um, a book that had an artist character, like a painter character, but, you know, I kind of like, she was like on the side and I had like a little bit of description of like a painting, but your book deals with like the real nitty gritty of like, a, like several series of artworks. I was wondering, you know, is this is this kind of a hobby interest of yours? Have you studied visual art? And if not, like, how did you, you know, how do you how do you write about visual art? Because obviously, you're you're using a non visual medium to describe something that like it, that like you know in my mind, a lot of the the photography and even the paintings that you described were like very uh, vivid. And I was wondering how you did that, just on a craft level, and also I guess research and other expertise.
2: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I have studied some um, art history and like done like a little bit of art on like a very hobby level, I guess, through my life. But I think ultimately I'm just like a super visual thinker. And I didn't actually have to like create any of these images. You know, I think that like if I had, like I would never be able to like create these images um, as they're described in the book and have them like look the way they look in my head and have them like actually be this you know incredible like piece of visual art because it's just it's not my medium um but I I felt it was easy for me to like envision the kinds of things that Miranda would be interested in representing and like what that might say about her sort of like space um like mental space at that point in the book I mean, it's also easier to like make good art if you just like have other characters say it's good. You know, it's (laughs) not like you have to like actually, uh, you know, go out and win a prize. You just say this person won a prize. Um, So yeah, but I did also do um, a lot of research um, just reading a lot of sort of like catalogs and coffee table books about this period um, in visual art. So I do feel like, most of her photographs um, and everything that, you know, she makes would fit neatly into, or not neatly, but it would fit into um, certain, like, you know, the artistic movements that she's supposed to have been a part of.
3: The other craft question I had um, was, and I think I've, I've mentioned this to you before, but I really thought that the romance element and the sex writing in this book were like extremely well done. And, you know, I'm actually somebody who like, I have like, I've, I've written four books. I've never written a sex scene. I, and, uh, yeah, I think I had like one kiss in one of my books and I was like, ew, I'm like imagining my parents reading it. (laughs) And, And I just, I think one day in my career, I would like to tackle this very important piece of the human experience, but I just haven't yet. And I don't even have that much, uh, experience or ability to like craft love, uh, romance, let alone sex. And, um, you know, I was wondering, do you read, do you read romance novels for one one thing? Because I feel like that's one area, one genre where people write sex really well. And like, how else have you, if not, if so, or if not, like, how else have you uh, kind of approached um, writing about romance and sex?
2: Yeah, I read romance and actually, I the book I wrote before taking apart was a romance. I wrote like a romance, and that's why I signed with my agent and then I um, ended up like for various reasons. We decided sort of like to shelve that. and then um, I wrote this book instead. Um, but I love romance. I also, you know, like I said, I love genre fiction. I love genre tropes. I love thinking about how to like invert and play with writers' expectations. I also think that romance is like probably one of the most suspenseful genres. So if we're like thinking about creating suspense, I think that, um, you know, a good romance novel has as much and often more um, of that kind of like what will happen next, just like waiting for a thing to happen than even a lot of crime novels do. Um so I definitely think that that's where um that's where like a lot of my interest in writing sex scenes came from, or like my um, understanding of how to do it in a way that made sense to me. Um, I felt, you know, like the sex scenes also, I wanted to, you know, show something about like the characters and like the trust between the characters at that particular moment in time. And so I think that, you know, sex is a good way of like a sex scene is a good way of like showing that kind of transparency and there's like a level of trust that develops between the characters as a result of it and so allowing the reader to see that i think um i think is valuable i will say that it became harder than i thought to like pull off you know like i wanted there to be this romance from the beginning but you know i it did become harder to pull off like a romance that's like convincing and still have this like darker, you know, main story and trying to like balance between the different tones um, and, you know, make the relationship between the two characters, Kate and Theo, make their like attraction and relationship realistic to like what else is happening in the story and who their characters are. which is like a story full of like deceit and lies, but also make you know, you want to root for them is it it was harder than I expected. Um I'm glad that
3: it came it came off well. Um yeah, I thought I mean I thought it came together really, really nicely. I mean, I, I guess like romantic suspense makes a lot of sense because I mean you were talking about how like romance can be suspenseful, but like I think about like in a in kind of a straight mystery novel like the promise is that at the end you'll know the killer and in like a in, in like a traditional romance novel the promise tends to be that like these people are gonna like get together at some point point. and so I think like the interesting thing about combining those two is, you know in this book and you know maybe a few other books I've read that that do that well is this idea of like is this like actually like a perfect hot man or is it a hot man who also maybe like killed his mom. And I think like that, that kind of toggle of like all or nothing, you know, he's either really great or he's a murderer. I think, I, I think it's pretty interesting, right? Like how do you treat somebody who's like, you know, there's like a 30% chance he's a murderer. Like, I think like that's something that she juggles while also dealing with her own struggles with being honest with this man. And I thought that was um, really intriguing. I mean, it, it, you know, and it's kind of, in some ways, it's a. In some ways, it's simple in the way that, like, in the in the way that these genre promises are, like, on some level simple, but like they can be endlessly fascinating. And I and I I just thought it was done really well.
2: I, also, I, I well, to give me an idea that I just want to throw out there because it just sort of occurred to me. But I do think a lot of romance models, like a lot of the tension, also um, or the overall dramatic arc comes from like people starting out with this attraction, that's like partly a projection and then kind of coming Mm -hmm. to terms with like the reality of that person. And so maybe there's a way in which like that kind of um, question and romantic suspense of like, who is this person really? How much am I projecting? Whether they're a murderer or whether they're like, you know, this perfect person. And maybe the truth is like, could be like either of them or it's more complex. Um, I think that like maybe that's a way in which the genres could fit together also.
3: Yeah, it's like an intensified version of something that most people reckon with at some point, which I think a lot of crime fiction really is. You know, it's just like, here's a, here's a personal dynamic you may have experienced, but like now there's a body. And I think like that's something that actually appeals to me per- about the genre, that like it can kind of make these universal, experiences uh feel really really high stakes um anyway um i just i want to ask you just uh, what was the experience of releasing your first novel in april 2020 because we met we met in november of 2019 uh at a con at like a big conference you know where like where like uh you know you were giving away galleys and like, we were all like meeting a bunch of people, like having a blast, you know, and I'm sure you had like a physical book tour planned. Um, And that was kind of in the early days when like, we maybe hadn't hit our stride. Um, And so I was was curious, like, you know, how was your debut experience?
2: You know, I think for me and for I mean, pretty much every author I know that had a book come out in March, April, or May of 2020, um, it was really tough. It was it was hard because it was like you said, it's time when we hadn't really hit our stride, and we were also at this point where like we had had these physical book tours like actually planned, and then had to go through like each event being canceled or having to cancel on the event, or um, and like not really having a replacement um, and you know, it, it was, it was difficult. It definitely was like hard for people to figure out like what was kind of expected. And a lot of bookstores and festivals just had much smaller slates once they transitioned to online. So I think that for any author, you know, debuting in the pandemic has been challenging in different ways. Oh, the other thing I would say at that point was that um physical bookstores weren't open so you know especially for like a debut author like what you hope is that um the book will be in bookstores people will pick it up like there will be like this um word of mouth there will be hand selling and um we had like such wonderful support from booksellers that it was disappointing not to be able to like have that carried through i mean for sure no fault of like booksellers of course um But just, you know, just like a situation that um, was disappointing. Um, I mean, I feel lucky, though, that the book community has been really supportive, like other authors have been really supportive. Um, I feel like it's been an interesting, like creative experience to try to figure out how to um, connect with readers Um, for all of us, not just for me, like we've had this interesting experience of. Figuring out how to connect with readers like creatively in new ways. Um, and I also, you know, feel really lucky that I do think um, my publisher, MCD, um, um, the people there are great. And I think they've done, um, you know, they did a really good job trying to do what they could. Um, and then again, you know, do what they can with the paperback um, and kind of like have had a lot of faith in the book. So that's been comforting. But it's been, uh, I mean, it's been hard. I was sort of like, when 2020 ended, part of me was like, it felt like I could like kind of turn a, a page a little bit. Um, and it was like a bit of a relief. But I actually think that a lot of debut authors probably feel that way, regardless of whether it's a pandemic or not. Like, there's just a lot of emotions you don't necessarily expect. I don't know if you felt that way when your first book came out.
3: Yeah, no, I did. I think and I, I think hearing you talk about it, it's interesting because I feel like there's I think I think for most debut authors, there's like something that like, you know, you don't really want to talk about because it's such a privilege to like have a book published. You know, it's like you spend all this time thinking like this is the goal to like have my book in bookstores and then there's an immediate readjustment where you want more you know, you don't want, you don't just want your book in bookstores, you want people to read your book and buy them for bookstores, you know, it's not enough to see the spine on the, on the shelf. And then it's like, oh, like, I'm not getting this review, or like, blah, 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 you know, and I'm speaking as somebody who had like three books that like, very few people read, you know, and it's, it's, so there's like a deflating part of like, being a debut author anyway, I think, although I think that your book had like, a good a uh, campaign behind it like i thought I, I did think that they did a good job and that wasn't a book that they were willing to let disappear you know so like i think like that's wonderful um but i do think like that is i don't know there's there's um there's like this transition from being a an aspiring writer to being a writer with a book coming up to being like oh this is like this is now kind of you're part of this new sphere Uh, And then you're no longer comparing yourself to like aspiring writers, you're comparing your book to like other books that are out in the world. And, you know, um, and and yeah, I think there's some deflation, some measure of deflation and like coming back to the real world that always comes with that. Um, But yeah, I mean, like adding the pandemic to it, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure this was like a really hard year for a lot of writers. you know, I'm, I'm I'm so glad to see uh that uh that uh you're doing events for the paperback, you know, and and you know, as we re-enter society, you know, I think like I went to the physical bookstore for the first time this past weekend. I don't know Yay. have you have you been yet? Yeah, it's exciting, yeah, it's so wonderful. I mean, I just it it felt so good i, I I'm just so happy to like have this back um Yeah, Yeah, I think
2: also, well, just to, like, add to that also that, like, you know, I think the other challenging thing was just that, like, like you said, 2020 is just such a difficult and traumatic year on so many levels. And so it's, like, hard to untangle, which, like, I think most of that for me was actually probably not linked to my book at all. Um, But it just gave, I mean, the whole year was, like, very... Yeah. Very tricky. And my partner is also in service. So it was honestly like very traumatizing um, for the first like, you know, few months of the pandemic, which is also like when this happened because there, you know, a lot of people being really unsafe, like customers and things like that. And it, it was like very stressful. So I do definitely want to clarify, like, I'm not at all like, oh, like it was a bad experience debuting or I would ever like take it back. But I just, it is like you say, this like a sense of deflation, but also just like a shift in like expectations for yourself and like for others, and also like this added vulnerability that comes with it. That I think is like more emotionally complex than like pe- than than people might expect. But it's overall definitely a positive thing. I'm really happy. I feel like it's opened up a lot of opportunities, and it's also like awesome to hear hear from people
3: who like the book. I think something that you Did miss out on but that I think you'll still have to look forward to now though is that um, like my favorite thing about having a book out was getting to meet other authors and, and, you know, building this community and, you know, I think that's such a, that's such a wonderful perk of being a writer that you get to like hang out with other writers and talk about absolutely all, like, Yeah, it's the best. You know, and you're not and your experience of that, you know, was put on pause. But like, that's going to come back. And I think that'll be really fun. I mean, we're all going to I think we should we'll probably see each other pretty soon. I mean, now that we're L.A. is opening back up. Um, I, I was I, I also want to ask, uh, you know, so how have you been writing this past year? Yeah,
2: I've been writing. I mean, it's been, it's felt like slow. I don't know if it's really been slow, though. It's weird how you're like, I kind of forget like what writing a book is like, and <laughs> you're like doing it again. So I was also gonna say, I mean, I feel also like I'm like, well, I'm gonna like keep writing more books. So like, it's also okay with me. I feel over overall really happy with like what you know happened with my debut and I also feel like a lot of the things that I missed out on like you're saying like book tour or being able to like have those experiences in person with other writers like at festivals and things like hopefully you know someday that will become possible again um and yeah I have been writing I think that all like that's also another reason it's been great to like connect with other writers online and everything is that I think that um it's just been a good way to like focus on like getting back to the writing and um immersing yourself in that because ultimately that's like all we can really control uh, but yeah I have been writing I guess <laughs> do you uh do you want to talk about what you're working on oh yeah so my next book will be coming out with um mcd also it doesn't have a publication date yet um I I, will go, I haven't really like figured out like the best elevator pitch for it yet because I haven't like finished the whole thing, but it's basically about um, a set of siblings and, uh, who live on the island and they're very close, but then a stranger comes into their midst, these weird things start happening and they sort of like turn on each other. So there's some horror elements as well. It's kind of like a suspense slash horror hybrid. Because you know, like people felt taking apart was like too easy to categorize. And so I was like, well, no, I'm just kidding. Um like the categorization has like been really hard for um <laughs> some people. But yeah, it's yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with it. I mean, I feel really passionately about the story. So I just hope I
3: can, you know, do it justice. Well, um it's been really great talking to you about this book and just in general, you know, this is so like I said, this was such a pleasure to read and I'm really looking forward to what you have coming down the pipeline um, and also to um, hang out again. And uh, yes, Yeah, bye. I'm going to, I should send an email. Um, I was actually thinking this today that
2: I'll send an email to a couple of people see if we can get together. I guess that's not necessary to put on the podcast. <laughs> I do <know, sorry.
0: laughs> <laughs>
3: um, Thank you so much for talking to me, Steph. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it, um, it's, it, it was really great talking to you. And, uh, you know, also I love Skylight and uh, I'm looking forward to going back to Skylight in person very soon. So um, thank you for having me on too. Of course,
1: we're, yeah, of course. We're very happy to have you. Well, we'd love to have you come by and sign some of your books because uh, they are on our shelves for our lovely customers to grab. And before we finish up, I wanted to ask you both one last question. Uh, So much of the last year has all of the content that is out. A lot of it kind of takes and takes something from you and requires something of you. Um, Is there anything that you were reading or watching or encountered that really filled you up and made you excited? Is there someone's work that you'd wanna uplift for a second?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, recently, um, I, did, I mean, I feel like there's so many people that um, are great to uplift. But just like last week or the last two weeks, I got really into Flynn Berry's work. She has this new book out, Northern Spy, which I haven't read, but um, I read her first two books, and I felt just like very inspired. They're both crime fiction with like, just like kind of like twisty narrators. Um, I just thought they were really wonderfully written, and I found them very like that feeling of like reading something that makes you want to write is like such an exciting feeling
3: for me um and that's how I felt when I read them. I read a lot of nonfiction um this past year in part because I've been listening I had a baby and I suddenly decided to read audiobooks you know very related um and uh I listened to a lot of audio uh, a lot of nonfiction, and I want to highlight a couple of recent books that I loved about Los Angeles, um, "Stealing Home" by Eric mm-hmm. Nesbom. It's a, it's like a history of uh, the of the creation of Dodger Stadium um, that talks about you know the destruction of Chavez Ravine. And, um, you know, it talks also about kind of baseball as the American past. It's a really great baseball book. And I have literally no interest in baseball. Uh, and it's just like a really good municipal history book too. And it's very well-written. Um, I also love the Compton Cowboys by Walter Thompson Hernandez. Um, and that's about, um, a, that's about a group of black cowboys in Compton, um, and kind of their lives and their history and, you know, the idea of. Cowboy, cowboy mythology as this very white centric thing, um, where there are act- there there is actually this kind of rich um, history of black cowboys and uh, and a living history, you know. And so that was that was a really great uh, book too. Um, I'd I'd recommend them both. Um, also, just like pure a book that surprised me just by like being so purely uh, wonderful. Um, The Good Lord Bird by James McBride. I bought it at Skylight a million years ago. (laughs) I was just sitting on my shelves. I thought it was, it's like thick, it's like a national book award winner, you know, I knew it dealt with like, like I knew it dealt with slavery. And I I just, it was like a book that I was like not expecting to be like so entertaining. (laughs) And um, so I'd recommend that as something that was very, you know, like, uplifting is, like, almost the wrong word, because it does deal with some very serious traumatic history, but uh, it's also just, it's, it's so good in every possible way.
2: Also, awesome. you talking about audiobooks reminded me, um, what I'm listening to an audiobook right now, which I love, it's a short story collection, which I also feel are very, like, so digestible, like, every, like, like just being able to like just dive into a story and feel that like sense of like accomplishment and finishing it has been awesome this year um but danielle evans is uh office of historical corrections um which is also and i'm and, and like maybe i feel like i more often read um short stories like in book form than on audiobooks i don't know if this is true but normally but she has a different like they had a different narrator read every story So it kind of has this like feeling of like, all these people sort of like coming together and like sharing these very different stories, which is really interesting. Um, But I love that. And I feel like the, they're also like have some really entertaining elements, even though um, the stories also deal with some difficult topics.
1: Awesome. Thank you both so much for sharing. And do either of you have any other work coming up or events or anything like that you want to
3: plug before we go? I have um, my first uh, Best American Mystery and Suspense Anthology as series editor is coming out, I think in October. Um, so um, uh, that's 20 really fantastic mystery and suspense stories. Um, I worked on this collection with Alithair Burke and we were both really, you know, you're talking about, Sarah, you were talking about like reading short stories as like being like this kind of fun. I mean, I read so many short stories in the last year and. And I, and we were both really blown away by some of the talent, you know, some stories from writers that we know or know of, and some by writers who were completely new to us. And um, I'm excited to share that book with everyone. So look out for that in the fall.
2: Yay, that's really exciting. Um, I don't have any, I mean, taking a part is out in paperback now. So that's like my main thing. And I do have some more events coming up, but I think we're still working on some of the scheduling. So I don't have a specific date to plug right now.
1: Alrighty, well, people can Keep an eye out for those events. And thank you again to Sarah for reading to us from Take Me Apart. And Steph, thank you for your generous, insightful conversation. Today's guests, once again, were Sarah Sliger and Steph Cha. You can order your brand new copy of Sarah's Take Me Apart in paperback, as well as all of Steph's fabulous titles. And to look out for that collection in October at www.skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening.
0: And we hope to see you soon.